0: Hi, I'm B. Shapiro. I'm the founder of Ellis Brooklyn. And the thing I love most about beauty is that you can tell whatever story you want to tell that day, no matter how you're feeling actually inside. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the
1: beauty industry. Well, welcome, Bea. We're so excited to have you here today on Beauty is Your Business to chat and learn a little bit more about you and the incredible trajectory of your career and the brand that you're building. So kind of rewind us a little bit. You have an interesting story going from being a journalist to a brand founder So, you know, rewind us to sort of like how your career started and then how it transitioned into where you are today. It's been quite a journey. It's
0: definitely not a linear line. It's so great to see you and to be on the podcast. So I started, I was your classic. I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. And it's really interesting because now I have staff who are young or, you know, we're interviewing college interns, et cetera. And I think There's this expectation that you're supposed to know what you want to do right away. And I actually think that causes a lot of pressure because how can you know what you want to do if you've actually never worked in the workforce and never actually done the work, right? It's almost like you're watching a TV store, like a TV show, and you think that's what you want your life to be. So (laughs) I had no idea. I grew up in the Seattle area. It It was really lovely growing up there now that I think back on it, but I wasn't exposed to certain industries. It was very tech heavy. There's like hospital jobs and engineers and that kind of thing, but there was no beauty industry there. So I remember loving fashion magazines, being obsessed with that world. And so I found a way to New York in the sense that I went to law school, not because I planned it. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, (laughs) but because I had no job after graduating. And I was like, oh my gosh, all my friends had jobs. What am I supposed to do? let me go to law school. So I went to law school, went through it, worked very briefly as an attorney. So I worked at a big New York law firm for like eight months. I literally woke up and was like, this can't be the rest of my life. And it's really bad when you're like 25, 26, and you're waking up every morning, and you're not excited to go to work. And And the truth is, work, there's a lot of ups and downs. So I don't want to paint this rosy picture that you should wake up every day and be super thrilled. But you also shouldn't be like dreading every moment. So I quit. I had no plan. I had no job lined up. I don't recommend this. (laughs) I didn't even have much savings. I remember I had like $5,000 in the bank. I mean, it really was not... An ideal situation, but I knew that this wasn't what I wanted to do. So I decided to try a bunch of different things. And I I realized that what I really loved was writing. And that was always the undercurrent to things like the law school and like the reasons why. And uh, with writing, me being always obsessed with fashion growing up, that's where I shot to be. So I started out as a fashion writer, I was building my clips. And then I was at the New York Times and literally the beauty column fell on my lap in the sense that somebody came over to my desk and they were like, the beauty columnist is leaving. We've talked to other writers in the column in this department. And do you want to, I'm pretty sure I was the
1: last person that asked. Wow, that's amazing. I probably was the last no. person.
0: <laughs> no, really, because I was one of the youngest writers in the division. And I'm shocked. I was like, okay, I'll do it. I did not know much about beauty from a business standpoint at all. I mean, I used beauty, but I was like a fashion girl. And this is like 14 years ago now. So it's been a really long time. But I like to say I grew up with beauty and I fell in love with beauty. And I think that there's like a power to that because I I mean, we've all been in those relationships where we're like head over heels in love with something right away. And then later on, it's it dull and boring. Um, for me, I fell in love with beauty along the way. And I actually thought the industry was just even more and more beautiful. So um, so that's how I got to beauty.
1: <laughs> wow, what a great story.
0: It's been a really fun journey. I still think writing, being a beauty journalist is one of the greatest jobs in the world.
1: <laughs> it is. I have to agree.
0: <laughs> Such a fun time. And it doesn't mean that you don't have rigor and you don't have intellectual leanings. It doesn't mean any of that. It's just that, wow, we're covering something that's actually super inclusive for the most part. It's not perfect. But we certainly try as an industry. And it's just a really fun category. So it's fun to go to work. And so I wasn't thinking like, oh, I want to leave beauty journalism when I started Ellis Brooklyn. I really thought, okay, I have something to say in fragrance. And I felt compelled to start it. And I did not take investments in the early days, at least. And so I didn't think, okay, I'm going to quit my New York Times job and do this only. It was more that I felt compelled. I wanted to bring this to, to life. I wanted to test myself, but I was going to keep my beauty journalism thing as long as I could. And so Ellis Brooklyn started. It was teeny tiny. I think we had two body lotions, year one. I always think it's funny when you read back, like when was the company started? Oh, 2015. Well, all of 2015, I had two body lotions. That was it. Selling the heck out of two body lotions, hustling. And then fragrance didn't launch till 2016. So that was like a four cent collection that launched in September of 2016. So that's kind of like where it all started.
1: 11 years. Oh my gosh, crazy. I'm curious why fragrance? Obviously, like there are a lot of categories in beauty. So what gave you the inspiration there? Why were you like, okay, there's something I want to do differently or that I can stand out in the industry?
0: So I, I got this beauty column and so I was like, oh my goodness, I need to go investigate this world. And so one really cool part about the New York Times is you do sometimes have beat reporters or somebody switch categories. So for example, sometimes there'll be somebody who covers Metro New York news and they move and become the food columnist, right? So it's pretty cool when you have this opportunity. So I was like, wow, let me really go investigate these worlds. And so the very first Event I went to was actually a fragrance event. And I met two journalists at the time there who were very powerful in that beauty world is Sarah Brown and Eva Chen, who's now at Instagram. And I remember it was my first time, it was my very first beauty event, really. And certainly, you know, representing the Times. And I was wowed. So I just was wowed in the sense that, wow, fragrance is so fascinating as a writer because. In many ways, fragrance tells a more succinct and clearer story or memory or whatever it is that comes up in your mind when you smell something than words can ever do. And also writing, it's actually very difficult to describe fragrance because it's always so personal. Even if you talk about the notes, most people actually don't even know what the notes smell like. So you really have to start describing it as a writer as a beauty writer in lots of different ways. So it was a really challenging category, but fascinating category for me. And that has maintained literally through my whole writing career, I always love the fragrance events the most because they're just so transportive and so different. Not that I don't love the other categories, but, you know, skincare is more functional. It's more about results. It's more about before and afters. And makeup, it's like a certain aesthetic you're going for, right? Like artistry, makeup artistry, that kind of thing. So fragrance to me was the most, the closest to that storytelling. And it was interesting, mm-hmm. like forever interesting challenge and intrigue for
1: me. Love that. And so when you decided that you wanted to start a brand, how did you begin Where do you start when you're transitioning sort of to another aspect of the industry that you're in? I thought I would be able to like knock on a few doors
0: and get all these contacts, and I could not have been further from the truth. You know, especially when I started the line, but even today, it's not clear where you're supposed to source things. So it's like, where do you actually get a really nice box? No idea, you know? And I have to say, I started asking around and a lot of people didn't know. And at that point in time, certain people didn't share too. I won't name any names, but it wasn't the easiest getting original like contacts for sourcing. And it was literally at my friend's baby shower. She and I had babies at the exact same time. She has two and I have two. So I was sitting there and I met one of her mom friends who was the packaging director at the time of Oribe. I actually don't know where she is now and I will be forever grateful to her because she literally like, well, this is where the boxes for Bay are made. And I was like, wow. So she had a real contact. From that contact, I found a label maker. And so I really plumbed that one real contact that I had, that I got from Go Moms, a mom
1: luncheon. (laughs) Just by chance.
0: Wow. Yes, by chance. I literally asked a lot of places and even sometimes when you reach out or go to like a convention, like LuxPack and stuff, there's all these suppliers, but you don't know if they're good or not, right? Of course, they're putting out their best face forward, but you really don't know.
1: That's so true. And then when it came to the branding, like the brand name, the design and all that, how did you approach that?
0: I also talked to agencies, but at the end of the day, I really thought, and maybe this is also because I've seen so many brands come across my desk. I truly believe you can't... I don't want to say I hate the word authenticity because it's overused, but I really think you can't fake a true story. So I thought about what was most true at that point in my life. So I was pregnant with Ellis living in Brooklyn. That was my life. So I called it Ellis Brooklyn, just like the most straightforward reference. And then for the actual logo, I had an idea. Like I wanted something that was both timeless, but yet modern. So when I think about creating sense, I think about telling stories of today. I know you've covered beauty for so long. A lot of fragrance stories are some dreamed up story or a story from yesteryear or story of a time and place really far flung somewhere else. And for me, when I make fragrances, I think about what's happening today. With that in mind, I wanted something both modern and classic and something that could really stand the test of time as far as font. But for the actual icon, which is like a leopard, actually, if you look at the icon that we use, it was originally a lion because when you have made it in writer world, you're called a literary lion. But then I went to this one writer's gala and it was just all the literary lines were like so out of touch. And so I actually changed it to a leopard after I came home from that because I was like, you know, I still love the idea of like a literary title. I thought like the line didn't quite match because it was very old fashioned. So I changed it to a literary leopard.
1: I love it. That's a great story. Who would have thought? Now, whenever I look at your packaging, I'll always think of that. (laughs) That's amazing. And then when it came down to the actual products, how did you decide what to launch with? And then as you kind of expanded, how did that work?
0: So at that point in time, because I was pregnant, I was wearing scent with lotion. So a lot of moms know that when you're pregnant and your belly gets really extended, I just wanted, you know, to cover it. I was covering it with all sorts of lotions and stuff. And I wanted it to still smell great. You know, I was going into the office four days a week. And so I wanted that juxtaposition of this like lovely scent, but not overwhelming. And so I actually started with two body milks, scented body milks, because of that. It was trust me, it was highly unusual. Everybody was like, Why are you washing with two scented body milks? It definitely had very low shelf appeal because it was like two products. It had no like collection appeal or anything. I truly tell you that I literally did not read like any marketing or go to market plan or anything like that. I just knew like I was going to make these two beautiful scents. And the two that we launched with, actually, there was there was a body care, I think it was actually three. So it was Myth was our very first scent ever. Pseudonym was the second scent. And then well, actually, no, oh my gosh, I can't even remember my own history. No, our first two body milks were pseudonym and verb. And those two don't even exist in fragrances. And when we made our fragrances, myth was the first one. So I had two body milks and two scents that you know only really exist in our candles now. I loved both the scents, actually, and I wear them all the time, but then when I was making the fragrances, I tried to convert them into fragrances, and they didn't quite resonate as well, and so that's why I was like, let's just go and make eau de parfum for the sake of eau de parfum.
1: And then how did you approach the scents that you launched as you were progressing over the year?
0: So I started with four scents, and I went and addressed categories in a way that I always wished that that specific category was. So with myth, that was a scent I made for myself, I had always wanted a white musk scent that had these other layers, these complexities and sophistication, but still beautiful. And I wanted an everyday scent for myself. So that was where myth came from. And rose, I was looking at a lot of artistic expressions of rose. And I always thought, it was a little too much. It was a little bit too much of a caricature of the rose itself, and so that specific scent. I was thinking about this one provocateur, Marcel Duchamp, and he would dress up as a woman, and in the, his female pictures, he was very glamorous, but he—you could tell—he was always trying to affect this feeling of youth and vivacity and all that stuff. And I think it's interesting because rose has that, right? Like the dewy petals, the gorgeous smell, the actual flower, but it wasn't really being captured in fragrance and fragrance. It was being addressed in a very different way. It was often very sexy rose or a very powdery rose. And it was all these different roses except for the flower itself. So our rose, the idea was to try to capture the flower, all aspects of it, like the softness of the petal, There's like a little bit of lemon up top because actually when you smell a real life flower, it's very fresh smelling. So that was that one. And then, so it went down the line, like I wanted to address categories in a way that I felt like was non-caricature like, like let's take it to today and like what we actually are experiencing and go
1: through. Amazing. And what is the fragrance formulation development process like for people who, you know, are not in that specific area?
0: Yes. So it can actually go very different ways depending on what kind of creator you are and what kind of company you are. So, and I don't want to speak too much about like some other companies in a sense, that I'm sure they have their own ways that, and I'm overgeneralizing here. But overall, if you're a really large company, you might send out an RFP, which is a request for a proposal, and you have a brief and you go and get a lot of blind submissions. Actually, a lot of times you might not even know the perfumer, you get these blind submissions and then you pick them a lot. I know there's also big perfume brands that want to work with a specific perfumer and they go and they send out these things and they do market testing and all that stuff. So there's many different ways actually to work with a perfumer for myself. I very early on chose not to do marketing research because I remember sitting in a marketing research presentation, there was a quote in there. And I was like, wait a second, that quote sounds really familiar. I have to see the footnotes. Long story short, they quoted my own article So, uh, (laughs) oh my gosh, (laughs) that's hilarious. It's come full circle, very full circle. And I was like, wait a second. So, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to trust my gut on these things. And market research is great to have just to know like a general lay of the land. But I don't personally want to say, oh my God, pistachio is hot right now. And I mean, go make a pistachio scent. (laughs) that's just not the kind of brand we are, you know? So for me, I actually love to come up with the idea. If it's a newer perfumer that I haven't really worked with before, I'll actually provide more detail. I've sent songs to perfumers before. I like to ask how the perfumer works. Some perfumers like songs and perfumers like images, some perfumers just like a description. But with the perfumers, I've actually worked quite a bit on before the crazy part is i actually tend to know their scent signatures and i can actually blind smell them and know who the perfume that is them <laughs> one of the perfumers i work with his name is pierre negrin he made salt with me and also apple love that just came out he told me it's like creating a vo- new vocabulary and i really really believe that for me because i would i do work with several perfumers many times I think it is creating a scent vocabulary together because scent is so difficult to describe and each person has a different idea of what sexy is of what clean is of what dirty is or whatever. We've actually sat down, me and Pierre, just smelling different things, saying notes together and saying the adjectives that come to our mind so that we understand each other. Because his background is very different than mine, right? Like I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, Asian American family, immigrant family. The smells pepper my memories are so different than his. He grew up in Grosse, super French, born into a perfumer, like his dad grew roses, you know? So that has been really helpful actually because then when you give each other feedback, like if I say, okay, I think there's, I'm making this up, too much rose in here or trying to get like a more nectar quality out of this rose, He knows what I'm talking about because maybe there isn't too much rose in there. Maybe it's because he needs to add more peach. I don't know, but he gets it. It's very difficult to communicate regarding scent unless you have built that vocabulary together.
1: That is so interesting to hear about the process. And so once you get the submissions, you kind of go through iterations and then until you get to the point that you're looking for.
0: Yes, modifications can take a long time.
1: (laughs) I bet. And then in terms of your approach when in retail, when you were launching, you obviously started with direct to consumer and then you expanded into retail. So how did that work? And were there any challenges along the way with that? Oh,
0: gosh, I like to say I earned an MBA, but not going to school. (laughs) For all you marketers out there, I so deeply respect you because as a journalist, I didn't understand marketing. And I sort of like shunted it to the side. I thought just getting press and like having a great product was enough. And it's just not true. So marketers and salespeople, they're your boots on the ground. They're the ones driving strategy. So when I first launched, I have to be honest with you, I didn't have much of a strategy. So I knew I wanted to launch D2C because I had no investors, so I was controlling it. And so I was like, well, I'll just make this very simple sort of website and I can control it. I misunderstood <laughs> what was the actual commitments of D2C. 2 is actually... For any like future founders out there, it's actually very expensive to start and not what people think. So for example, if I get into Sephora or Barney's or Barney's is defunct now, but you know, back in the day, Barney's was a really big deal when I first launched. So if I get into something like that, it has immediate cachet, it has immediate curation, it has immediate attention put on it. If I'm just out there launching on DVC, which is what I did, I first started on DVC. you have to buy all that. So you have to go out and spend media ad dollars to convince people that this is a legit site, much less a legit product, you know, and that actually is a marketing and then you need to do a lot of investment in that. And so I started the DTC thing and I was like, Oh my gosh, these ad spends and I was running ads on such a small scale, but it was my own money. So it didn't make any sense. And so that's when we launched the two body milks at Barney's. So that was like a really big deal for me. (laughs) I just realized like what a retailer can bring. There is so much that they can bring.
1: Yeah. And then how did you expand kind of obviously into Sephora and other, there was that sort of once you got in, you know, one place, was it easier to expand into others or?
0: Yeah. So Sephora, we partnered for the perfume launch. So we had four fragrances and we did a Sephora.com launch. And I still love my first buyer. She's now Estee Lauder. So we've stayed in touch they were such great partners in that they understood that maybe I was strong on product and concept and, act, and actual scent, but had no idea like how this business <laughs> is actually run. And so, in the early days, they really handheld me through it. They, I remember, I even flew out a couple of times and they did these branding deep dives where they would comment on my packaging, they would comment on my They would comment on everything. And for me, it was like getting a free branding session. I know some brands don't love it because they're like, no, this is my vision. And that's it. For me, I was so brand new in the idea. I wasn't brand new to beauty, but I was brand new to the business of beauty, right? And so it was literally amazing. And they really handheld me through that whole time for sure. And taught me like, okay, this is your investment and brand awareness. Okay, let's not spend too much on that, because we really still need conversion. So that was really the start, I would say, like the modern day business, because the first two the first year and a half, really, because Sephora eau de parfum didn't launch till September of 2016. So it was towards the end. I was really just trying to get a product onto the shelf. That alone is like a big feat if you are um, self-funded. So that was pretty much the majority of the time and building some brand awareness on the body milks. And then when the scents came out, it was like a whole new world because Sephora was really taking me down this journey of learning business.
1: Wow, that's amazing to have that sort of unexpected, almost advising along the way from them. That's really, really neat. At any point did you feel like obviously you were self-funded that you needed investors did you ever go that route or did you have you kind of kept it
0: So after Sephora launched I realized I couldn't handle a lot of things on my own and the team was like a team of two I would say one and a half because my sister started helping me out but she still had her full-time day job so she helped me out on some ops stuff and it was me so and so the thing with Sephora is that you know they were teaching me the investments that I needed to make so I knew that if I needed to move the product, I needed to do samples, for example. Samples are very costly. And so I had to go out and get some investors. So I, in total, for until our recent Series A that just closed a few months ago, in total, we didn't raise a whole lot. So I kept it pretty close in terms, we did raise some funding just to go into Sephora and make sure our production could be okay. But we were certainly—it was a friends and family round, so it was very scrappy
1: for a long time. But you did eventually get <laughs> what you needed. That's great. Looking forward to the future. What do you see for the brand? Obviously, it's grown so much in a few years, and you know, I'm curious to see what your goals are going forward.
0: Yeah. So you know, for me, I'm really realizing as we get bigger, and I just actually hired two people this week, so I'm really excited. So it's been really interesting figuring that part out and hiring a bunch and the team's growing and like location and workspace and all that stuff. So there's always these facets to learn. I would say what I've also realized since COVID and then now today is that to really tell your brand story is such a big, massive exercise. And so for me, I'm really thinking about that future ahead is like, what is that? And it remains the same, but how do we tell that in the store? So I actually currently, right now, I'm in Austin, Texas. I was in two Sephora stores yesterday, and I've been spending a lot of time in store because I really think as much as we are a digital world, there is something special about human connection, and something about fragrance demands it, actually, because, yes, I have been influenced on Perfume Talk to go try something, But, you know, when you're in store, scent is a category where you either love it or you don't. And certainly you can be influenced one time to buy something. But if you don't love it, you're not going to rebuy that. So it's a passion category that part I've been reconnecting with because COVID changed us in the sense that we could talk about scent. We've gotten much better vocabulary as a community, as a culture to talk about scent. But I think the going back to store element, actually experiencing it is special. So that's where like my mind is now for like the next few
1: years. I love that. And do you have any advice to entrepreneurs or people looking to kind of like pivot in their careers into something new, start their own brand? Is that you? No, just kidding. (laughs) No, not me at this point, but if I ever do, I know who to talk to. (laughs) For sure. You can reach out anytime.
0: Well, I think the thing that was most interesting to me, and maybe a surprise I would say, is the learning of some basic business stuff that that if you choose to be a founder, you have to understand. So There's very few situations for founders where you can be purely creative. You know, there's a few legendary ones that I can think of, like a Tom Ford with his Dominico DeSol or something like that. But that's not the way, but he had already proven himself. It's not like he just came out of nowhere and found this amazing business (laughs) partner, right? So if you're going to start something, you have to understand that so much of the work is actually business. And you have to be comfortable with that because, I truly, truly enjoy my creative moments now. And I cherish them because they are not the bulk of my day
1: anymore. Interesting. I feel like from the outside, the perception is like, oh, this brand founder, fragrance company, she's always like creating these scents and mixing and, you know, testing new notes. And that's just how you would picture like the majority of your life. But it's, it's so interesting to hear that, that it really is like the nitty gritty that takes up a lot of the time. And I'm curious, like, what has the, been the most surprising part of starting a business that you've loved and then something that you really not loved <laughs> as well?
0: So I really don't love administrative stuff. So I'll start with that first. I'll start with this. I mean, little things like insurance onboarding. You know, onboarding of staff on insurance and technology, that is um, very low on things I like to do. (laughs) So administrative stuff can really get you after a while. And certainly as your staff grows, it can help if you have people in your team to do that. But it's much scrappier than people think on the founder and business side. There's big brands out there that I know that have small teams. So I find that really interesting and surprising. And you just have to be able to, you know, pull up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. And then the part that I love that I truly just because I just said that, you know, I spend a lot of my time on these things, the part that I love and I've been more and more surprised at is I I actually fragrance is one of the more innovative categories. And some of the fragrance houses have even started making skincare ingredients and stuff like that. And I think sometimes that's not talked about in fragrance. I think fragrance, often we talk about like the beauty of the notes and like the sourcing of where the rose comes from. But actually behind the scenes, there's so much going on with the naturals. There's so much going on with sustainability. And I've really been trying to start to talk more and more about that with um, our community. But It's not different, but it's just like not the usual conversation, right? So it's like you have to change the tenor of the conversation. It's like, no, fragrance is very innovative and very modern. It just depends on how you use the ingredients. So that's been an interesting surprise, and it's a part that I love. I love one of the gifts I think I want to try to save up for, for next year is in May, the roses grow and grass, and they're harvested. So Pierre, who I just mentioned, Pierre Negrin, he goes and spends may through july in gross because he still has a house there and he's like you have to come and i was like oh my god i think i have to give this as a birthday present to myself because my birthday is in may and i was like oh my gosh i just need to go and pick some roses so those are the aspects i
1: really love. that would be amazing you definitely should do that it's your job technically so <laughs> technically you know well, thank you so much, B. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Loved hearing your story in more in depth. Do you have a final thought that you want to share with our listeners and how they can connect with you, whether it's on Instagram, website, email, whatever you prefer?
0: Oh, you can find us at Ellis Brooklyn on Instagram and TikTok. It's Ellis Brooklyn official. And I think just the one little note that I would like to just share is that the one thing that I think is so beautiful about scent is that it actually there's when you smell something and and you focus on the scent your mind actually clears. You don't think about anything else. It's not like it's not like a movie, it's not like TikTok, it's not like visuals where you're just paying attention. When you smell something, it, your mind it's like a moment of zen. So really think about that because i really think you know that classic saying stop and smell the roses it really is true because it makes you very present so that's the one thing i would say is that scent makes you really present and that's a beautiful thing
1: i love that it's so true as i go and smell one of your fragrances (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much B. this has been such a great chat i really appreciate your time thank you to everyone for listening check back soon for another great guest i'm april franzino and this is beauty is your business this has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast
0: at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.